0: We record on Turrbal and Yagara country in Mianjin, Brisbane. Brisbane Festival recognises the integral role Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples continue to play in the creative and artistic events and celebration spaces and pays respect to Elders past, present and emerging. Beginner's Call takes you backstage with Brisbane Festival and into the hearts, minds, and rehearsal rooms of the casts, creators, and critics behind Queensland's most anticipated event of the year.
1: Our guest this episode is writer, director, and designer, David Morton, co-founder and creative director of Australia's celebrated design-led theatre company, Dead Puppet Society. He's an Olivier Award nominee and Five Times Helpman Award nominee, and he's about to unveil Dead Puppet Society's most ambitious work yet, a queer retelling of Home is the Iliad, for which David is writer, director, co-creator, and co-designer. Here to make me feel incredibly inadequate... It's David Morton. <laughs>
0: oh, Welcome, David. Adam, that's such a wrap. Thank you. Mostly, I'm just happy to um, to see that you're well on the way to taking over uh, Brisbane's radio scene. I hope this works. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, now, David, this may well be the first time an epic Greek tragedy of this scale was conceived in a bagel shop in New York City. Can you take us back to where the idea originated?
0: Oh, absolutely. It wasn't the most glorious of times for the company, actually, when (laughs) when we had this conversation. Nick and I had been over in the UK for a majority of 2018, working with Trish Wadley from Trish Wadley Productions and Gareth Lake from Glass Half Full Productions on the version of our show, The Wider Earth, that played at the Natural History Museum. And it was an absolutely extraordinary, my gosh, almost 12 months that we were working with them over there. And in early 2019, so tired that we could barely function, (laughs) Nick and I left London and headed to New York to try and find some brain and soul space for a little bit. We were very, very tired, to say it <laughs> in the most loving way, and we didn't really know where we wanted to go with the company or what the next things that the company would work on would be, because uh, the wider earth had been You know, really the sort of backbone of everything Dead Puppets had been doing from 2016 through to that point. So, a long time. And so, Nick and I set ourselves a task that we would not talk about work for a fortnight, which, for anyone who knows us, knows is an utter impossibility. (laughs) And that at the end of that fortnight, we would go and we would take ourselves out for a work date to have a bagel and a coffee and to pitch each other what we might like to work on next. And Full disclosure, we had said to each other, if we don't have anything at this date, we will put a pin in the company for a bit till we can find the energy and the passion to drive again. And we scared the living daylights out of ourselves, I think, by saying that and both rocked up for this bagel date, overflowing with ideas about things that we (laughs) wanted to do. And two of the things that came back really strongly were, one, we really wanted to tell a queer story and we wanted to tell a story that had queer heroes at the heart of it. And we also wanted to delve into Greek mythology. And those two things felt like they could potentially go hand in hand. It was actually the same <laughs> bagel date where we decided we'd do Moby Dick in space, but we all, <laughs> we all know how that went down there. <laughs> so this is, the, yeah, this is the other child of that fated breakfast.
1: Fantastic. And, and you can't pick favorites, but uh, would we say the favorite child?
0: Yeah, the the favourite child, maybe the problem child as well, (laughs) in terms of the number of moving parts and things that have been wrangled for it. But it's on another level entirely, Tishmael.
1: That's so exciting. Now, you have mentioned two of your bigger works in recent years just now, one being the Olivier nominated The Wider Earth based on Charles Darwin's diaries. And last year's, how did you phrase it? Moby Dick in Space? Moby
0: Dick in Space.
1: <laughs> Moby Dick in Space Saga Ishmael. Now, Dead Puppet Society has a long celebrated history of reimagining, literally flipping them on their head, these classic tales. Why this type of storytelling for the company? What's the hook for you as creators?
0: I think it's you know so much of what Nick and I love about working in a storytelling space is the way that stories myths classic tales they're such a part of the Zeitgeist right and even when not actively speaking about them so many people have a knowledge of these works and they come to influence us I think in a number of different ways And I think we are so obsessed with them is that the reason these stories have survived so long is because every generation that's become obsessed with them has reinvented them, has retranslated them, has changed the core narrative points or the characters that are within it. They've added shadows and shades to them to make them speak more to their time. As part of this show, as an example, going back and reading a number of the different translations of the Iliad, you can literally pick the social mores and social norms of the day and how Helen of Troy is spoken about, say. And and I think that that sort of speaks to why Nick and I like these sorts of stories, because we're not just doing adaptations of them. I'd like to hope, probably arrogant to say, but we're putting a slant on these classic tales in the same way that countless other authors, creatives, and writers have in the past hopefully to allow them to speak to a contemporary audience and more strongly to the world that we're living in today. And what was it about
1: Homer's Iliad that captured your imagination in that sense, in that you felt that it deserved a revisit for a 2022 audience?
0: That's an interesting question. I think there were two things. One, there is such a, <laughs> a long history to the debate around the nature of the relationship between Achilles and his best friend slash relation slash lover slash husband Patroclus. And that was definitely a real area of interest for Nick and I in you know, deciding we wanted to put queer heroes at the center of a story. And so that's definitely one of the core reasons that attracted us to the material. But I think more so than that, as we've been moving through the adaptation and working with the broader team of collaborators, is that you know the Iliad is the story of an incredibly violent conflict and as a piece of work, it's just steeped in blood and violence. And in the world that we're living in today, it's, I've always found it really interesting that this story has survived and continues to be told and appeared in numerous novels in the last decade. We've had you know, the stunning film with Brad Pitt in it, but all of these works still seem to glorify the conflict and still seem to glorify this idea of heroism being the person who is the strongest or the person who is the most brutal. And so the thing that's really emerged for us since we started working on the piece is the way that we've been able, I hope, to grab it and to flip it to, I think, put a much more modern viewpoint on the nature of the conflict and the insane cost that this sort of interaction between humans has, and then to reshape the notion of heroism so that it's not (laughs) what the original source text is speaking to.
1: You you touched on a moment ago about the ambiguity surrounding the relationship between Achilles and Patroclus over the years in a variety of different retellings of this tale. Mm. I know that one of the jumping off points for you was a single line in Homer's Iliad where Achilles describes Patroclus as the man I loved beyond all other comrades, mm. loved as my own life. What is your understanding of what that line in particular means in the context of the tale, and how has that informed the relationship that has been set up in holding Achilles mm. between the two characters?
0: Okay, I think that question really speaks to what I was mentioning in terms of you know the way that these classical tales are adapted and changed depending on the social context that they're told in. There's a lot of academic material around the fact that Homer, never explicitly (laughs) mentioned a romantic relationship between the two men. And yet then when you look at some later classical Greek writers and thinkers, they overtly describe it as such and think, well, of course, this is what Homer means. And then as we move through into sort of a medieval or Victorian sort of time period, that the nature of that relationship is once again flipped because it was a period that was intensely homophobic in the Western world. And so, of course, it's adjusted I'd say all that by way of going. I think that this is a story that's so old that the nature of that relationship ultimately is open to the interpretation of any individual who comes to it. And so as a gay man living in a world that feels like we're moving in a direction where equality and equal rights are beginning to gain serious traction and not just at a legal level but in a social way as well, I can't help but read the relationship that these two have as being one of romantic love And particularly later in the Iliad, when Patroclus does meet his end and the nature of Achilles' reaction to that end, uh, in the way that Homer writes about it, I have real difficulty reading that as a man who lost uh, (laughs) a military partner, like the depth of Achilles' reaction to the loss of Patroclus, to me, just screams of him having lost his soulmate.
1: You mentioned there are several adaptations of the Iliad that tend to really glorify and romanticise the scale of the Trojan War, Mm. um, but that you're seeking to do something quite different. Mm. Chat us
0: through where this particular retelling of the story places its focus. There's two things that we focus on. Our retelling of the story unashamedly leans in to the love story between the two young men. And when we first meet both of them, they are deeply damaged by the <laughs> primarily military paradigm of the world that they're living in. Achilles has grown up with an absent mother and yet prophecy that she gave him before she left that he could either choose to be effectively a long-lived nobody or a short-lived legend. And then Patty, as a young man who's been kicked out of his home and disowned by his family. And so these two young men who are suffering really from the world effectively turning its back on them, each other and through each other are able to become their best selves. So I, th- I think that's, that's one of our focuses. The other focus that we have, particularly in the second part of the play when we are at the Trojan War, is we've turned the mechanisms that triggered that conflict on their head. I can't say too much because I don't want to give the turn away, but the abduction of Helen by Paris of Troy is treated very differently in our adaptation and is used to bring into question the motivations for the Greeks or the Achaeans entering into the conflict in the first place. So there's this overtly political overtone about the way that the Achaean kings have manipulated individuals under their sphere of control for economic and political Mm. reasons, sold as something very different. Mm. I hope that answers your question.
1: Mm. We talk about the fact that very deliberately your telling of the story seeks to challenge the glorification of war, but one thing that can't be denied is the scale Of the Trojan War and this work in particular tackles that in a very interesting way through a unique partnership with the acclaimed physical theatre company Legs on the Wall. Chat to us about how that partnership came to be.
0: The partnership has been around for almost as long as the idea. It was within months of us returning from our faded trip to the States that uh, Nick and I first began speaking with Josh from Legs on the Wall about what it might look like to work together. And the impulse primarily came from the idea that we knew we were going to be playing around in this material where humans needed to do superhuman things. And to talk to Legs on the Wall, a company that quite literally enabled Human performers to defy gravity. There's a good reference. So we should play that song there. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it just sort of felt like a natural fit. And so early on, we did some creative speed dating. And at that point, the story only existed as an outline of what the adaptation would be. We got into a room with some performers who'd worked with legs a lot before and began to work out how we might work together and what sort of script I would need to then create in order to house that collaboration. And working with them has been an absolute dream. We're companies of a similar scale, you know, that play a similar role in the ecologies of, of our respective cities. And it's been really amazing to work in co-production with another organization. It feels like coming home and we meet each other at the table and we have such different ways of working. And yet I think we found a way through that really leans into the strengths of both organizations.
1: Mm. And it sounds like then that in the making of the work, and especially given for you as creators, Legs on the Wall was always a part of your vision, it sounds that the movement world and the world of the text were built simultaneously. Is that correct?
0: Yeah. We had an initial story outline where I'd gone through and carved out where I thought we'd be using dialogue or more sort of traditional theatrical means to tell story, where we would be using heightened physicality or choreography to tell story. And the third sort of line where we'd be using good old like DPS epic staging, object manipulation slash puppetry to tell stories. So we sort of had these three camps. And as I created the first draft of the script, you know, we started referring to it not necessarily as a script, but as our story document, because it captured not only what was being said by the actors, but also had lines that were written into it which referenced out story points that would then need to be captured in movement or staging sequences when we met them in a physical development, which means that that document's quite deceptive. There's the good old page a minute average for script to stage, but in our document, sometimes there'll be two lines of narrative cues for Josh and the physical team to pick up and run with that then turn into two or three minutes of content to amazing music. So, it integrated from day one and sort of, yeah, all woven into this, I guess, master document that holds the characters and the story, regardless of what form we're playing in, to a tight arc.
1: And tell us about the use of puppetry in this production. Uh, For those perhaps new to the work of Dead Puppet Society, one of the hallmarks is the company's really innovative use of puppetries, and not necessarily in a conventional sense. What's the role of puppetry in the world of holding Achilles?
0: I think, Adam, in this work we're pushing the idea of what can be considered puppetry further than we have before. You know, like we've made works in the past like Laserbeak Man, which or ostensibly massively well-resourced puppet shows, and this is the absolute other end of the spectrum. So, there are a couple of creature puppets that appear in this work, which people who've seen our work in the past will be familiar with, that speak to the same sort of genre as wider earth in, yeah, these sort of abstract laser-cut figures. But what's really exciting about this show, I think, is that that notion of puppetry or that sensibility of how we can manipulate objects or bodies in order to tell story that transcends just to the human form is at play in so many different ways we use object manipulation to create parts of the sonography and the set the way that the performers bodies are manipulated by the rig by josh and the team at legs in a way turns them into a sort of puppet through the manipulation that we're able to do on the human form and then I think the sort of like piece de resistance at the centre of all of that is part of the set is this absolutely incredible piece of automated staging that hovers above the stage, is driven by winch motors, and is at once sort of like part of the scenography but also plays a character in the piece. So the idea of puppetry has sort of gone from not just the little figures on a tabletop, but filling the playhouse stage. Mm.
1: The collaboration with Legs on the Wall is such an interesting one of two really leaders in your respective fields coming together and creating a new version or form of theatre that plays to both of your strengths. And I'm curious about how that has played out from an actor's point of view. There's obviously some very loved Queensland actors that have been such a staple of Dead Puppet Society work in Lauren Jackson, in Ellen Bailey, Tom Larkin. Did they know when they were signing up for this work that they would come out the other end as acrobats?
0: <laughs> Look, yeah, I think I think they did. <laughs> the incredible luxury of you know that we've had with this work, and sort of I guess the necessity of the sort of work we're making is that we've had a lot of development time in studio, and nearly everybody who's in the cast has been with us through multiple weeks of work on the floor and through working in the harnesses and, um, yeah, I guess skill up and slightly adjust the way that they're working in order to be able to take part in this um, (laughs) physical ordeal. In the show
1: program, David, you note that Achilles and Patroclus are two characters who you feel you've come to know as friends. What have they taught you throughout this process over the last couple of years?
0: I think I put that note in the program after a conversation I'd had with Carl, who's playing Patroclus, where we'd been navigating the arc of that character through the show and trying to work out what the sort of the core logic that sits behind this young person is that means that he behaves the way he does in the unbelievable circumstances he finds himself in. And it was a very long text back and forward conversation. And we we hit this point where I think, you know, both of us just had A deep breath goosebump moment, honestly, where we realized that what was driving this young person was this insane sense of optimism and that it didn't matter what the world did to this person, they would always believe that it could be better, constantly believe it could be better. And and I think for me, that was a moment where I was like, you know, in the process of the writing of this work and the creation of this work over the last three and a bit years, and so much has happened in the world, right? Like, <laughs> holy moly, this was conceptualized way before Rona was even thought of. We hadn't even had the whole bushfire summer yet. And I think in in having this chat with Carl and realizing that that was what was driving this character and then looking at what I know that I had been through personally in the last three years, but also what my you know closest friends and family had been through, I was just like, oh my God, we have all effectively been put in a position where we have to become this person where we wake up every morning and go oh, my God, yesterday was horrific, but I have to believe today can be better. And I think that that's honestly what that character has just rammed home for me. And being able to watch this character play out in what he has to face in the show and still make that choice every morning, yeah, I can't get past it. It's going to take a long time before I can shake that discovery that we had in that conversation.
1: One of the things you mentioned earlier in concepting of this show was that it started with you and Nick wanting to create a work that was queer at its core. And the the resulting work is a queer retelling of Homer's Iliad. Do you think there'll ever come a time when we are able to stop using queer to classify our work?
0: Look, that's so interesting. And I also think it bears saying that that one word captures such a diversity of experience in a community that has such divergent opinions or diversity of opinions on oh, <laughs> the use of the word, and you know, larger social structures. I honestly don't know. I can only speak to my experience. There's something I know that I feel has happened in my life since the plebiscite happened in Australia, where I've been in this incredibly privileged position of not feeling as as different, so as othered, and in that sense, finding credible pride in the use of that word and identifying, you know, with that community. That would make me think, like, oh god, I hope we don't lose it. You know, in the in a sense, to lose the stigma attached to it in very, you know, various segments of the community. Amazing, I think that. Of course, the thing that this show does, though, which I'm very proud of, and came out early on during readings with some performers up in Brisbane, is that the fact that Achilles and Patroclus in our adaptation are gay is never mentioned in the world. Then it's there's no. It's a world that sees that relationship as it sees all other relationships and i think that there's something really special in that that here's a story and yes it's a tragedy you know the story of achilles and patroclus regardless of their relationship is a tragedy but it's not a tragedy because of their sexuality it's amazing because of their sexuality (laughs) does that make sense Mm. so some yeah Mm. this is not another queer tragedy it's a tragedy with queer characters
1: Mm. one of the many, many, many amazing parts of this production. I'm embarrassed that I've not mentioned it until now, but it is the fact that Australian music icon Montaigne is one of the incredible musicians, composers, responsible for the musical world of the show.
0: What has Montaigne and her team of collaborators created for the show? What Montaigne and Antoni and Chris the co-composers on the work have provided honestly is like the soul of it (laughs) like it is the total backbone honestly to everything that we're telling on stage in the same way that the physical components were being written alongside the draft script tony who was leading on the composition working with Montaigne and chris we had a draft of the entire score before i'd finished the first draft and so the draft was then informed by the musical choices they were making And likewise, all of the other elements within the production, you know, not just the the script and the movement, Anna, co-set designer and costume designer on the work, has spoken a heap about the fact that she believes that the set looks the way it looks because she was listening to the music while she was creating it. And so it's sort of, it's permeated everything. And yeah, as I said before, it's sort of the soul of the piece. What they've created is breathtaking.
1: And how would you describe it in terms of a musical world sound genre? What can audiences expect? Oh,
0: it's very filmic. It's very it's epic and sweeping. You know, in a, as a soundtrack, and and there are also these amazing ballads that Montaigne's written in there with the team. Chris also too from Grizzly Bears. Uh, primary focus is percussion. So there are these unbelievable driving beats. Sometimes, you know, within the arrangement and orchestration of a particular piece, but also numerous tracks which are just percussion. The music is amazing. I think it says a lot (laughs) when you're in rehearsals and we're playing the same songs on repeat for weeks on end and there is not once, I think, where we've gone, oh, we need to move on from this. It's like the music is just Mm. so, so good. And the fact that Montaigne is performing live is next level.
1: Mm. By the sounds of things, and especially if if music is used for both scene setting and underscoring, and then progressing mm. narrative, is this holding
0: Achilles the musical? <laughs> Do you know? What? It's so funny you say that because when we're looking at this as a piece of work, like in a very clinical, formal sense, the script looks like the book for a musical. Like, it does. It's just that the characters don't sing. But there are entire sections of storytelling that are given over to the music, and that's all notated in the script. It's just not the actor's singing. So it is it is like, I think it's about as close as we could get to a musical without it becoming a musical. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe we should write a musical. Um. <laughs> Maybe
1: holding Achilles the musical coming to Brisbane Festival 2024. <laughs> oh, uh, 2029. Give us
0: 2029. Give us a little bit. <laughs>
1: <laughs> David, this work has been in development now for almost four years and it is now the eve of its world premiere at Brisbane Festival 2022. How does it feel to be applying the final touches in preparation for its very first audience? It feels
0: amazing that we're this close, amazing and insanely stressful. But, you know, that's a good, that's a perfect mix, right? We're trying to use the word anticipation rather than anxiety, but it's probably the latter. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know, it's it's always amazing when you get to this point because, you know, we go from a small core team of collaborators slash me sitting by myself and watching a deathly cursor blinking to an incredible team of talent and individuals and watching everybody grab the material and put their own spin on it and run with it is honestly the i it makes me the happiest i get in my job and two weeks into rehearsals now with two weeks left to go and you can just absolutely feel the groundswell of energy and movement under this project from everybody involved and gosh it's a massive team But, yeah, two weeks is not long. So here we go.
1: (laughs) (laughs) At its core, David, holding Achilles questions traditional notions of heroism, as you say. What does heroism mean to you?
0: This has sort of been a, a deep dive, I think, as we've been moving through the material because I knew, starting this adaptation, that the notion of heroism in the classical adaptations of the Iliad of the spear-wielding warrior who was ruthless, you know, and willing to commit any manner of (laughs) crimes against humanity for the sake of their own reputation, for me, didn't feel right, you know, and was the antithesis of the idea of, from my perspective, the hero that we need today or the idea of heroism today. And the thing that we've gotten to as a large team and through many conversations and that we're all sort of holding to as the guiding principle of this work And it's infiltrated everything from the story down to the way that we work with each other in the room is that the ultimate heroism is the service of others. And it's sort of a message that rings true, I think, through this entire production. And honestly, I think puts a massive stain on the idea of (laughs) the heroic being the macho uh, warrior, which I'm really excited about.
1: I am incredibly excited. Uh, With just two weeks to go, we shan't hold you up any further. Thank you so much for this chat, David, and we look forward to seeing Holding Achilles in a very short amount of time.
0: Thank you, Adam. Me too.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, David. Brisbane Festival returns to fill the city with three weeks of wonder delight, heroism, and celebration from the 2nd to the 24th of September 2022. For information and tickets, visit brisomfestival.com.au.